the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, before we look at this verse, and we will look at it, and all that Peter has to say about the resurrection of Jesus, it's important for you to understand the significance, the significance of Jesus being raised from the dead. Why is this so important? First of all, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate proof that he is deity, that he is God in human flesh. The verse under consideration is Acts chapter 2, verse 24, which says concerning Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's part of Peter's proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue our study of Peter's Pentecost sermon as we look at the second chapter of the book of Acts. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. By this point in his sermon, Peter had already shown how Jesus' miracles and his crucifixion proved that he was the Messiah. And here, starting in verse 24, Peter quotes Psalm 16 to show that the risen Jesus must be the long-expected Messiah. So let's grab our Bibles and get ready to learn more about Peter's brilliant defense of the faith. Here's Pastor Steve. Soon after I became a Christian, I found myself one day with some of my friends from high school, and I told them that I was now a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. Needless to say, no one that day appreciated my new faith or agreed with me about who Jesus actually is. And I distinctly remember one of my friends in opposing my faith telling me that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah, but rather he said it was his disciples who actually made this claim about him. Now, where he came up with this, I don't know. But it's not true. He was wrong. Jesus very definitely claimed to be the Messiah, the one who the Old Testament prophets predicted would come to deliver and to to save his people. And throughout the New Testament, we read many times where Jesus said either directly or indirectly, that he was Messiah. For example, in John chapter 4, we read about this incredible conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman in which he just brilliantly led her along to a place where she would see her need for salvation. In the process of, of this happening, she makes this statement about the Jewish Messiah. She tells Jesus in John 4, verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. Now, she says that to Jesus. Here's his response in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. Now, folks, I don't know how you could be more direct 
than that. He's making a direct claim that he who is standing in front of her, talking to her, is the Messiah. And then I remind you, last week we looked at another amazing passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 11, in which John the Baptist, this great man, John the the Baptist expressed some doubt as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. This was the time when John was in prison, and from prison he had heard about the works of Jesus, that he was doing these marvelous works of, of miracles, and so he sends couple of his disciples to speak to Jesus and to ask him a question. The question is this. He's he's asking him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Which is another way of saying, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else who is the Messiah? In response to this question, Jesus told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him about the miracles that I'm doing. Now, the reason he answered this way is because he was reminding John that the prophet Isaiah predicted that when the Messiah would come, he would do the very miraculous works that Jesus was doing. And once again, this is our Lord claiming to be the Messiah. On another occasion, Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. In other words, he was telling them that the Old Testament scriptures speak of him as the Messiah. Perhaps the greatest declaration ever made by anyone that Jesus is Messiah. Messiah, by the way, means Christ, the anointed one. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Jewish Messiah. It means the anointed one. So the greatest declaration that's ever been made that Jesus is the Christ was made by Peter. That great confession. Jesus not only agreed with Peter's confession, he approved of it. Peter said in response to our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So far from denying it, Jesus told Peter how right he was. He said that it was the father who has revealed these truths to him. You didn't figure this out on your own. He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, I mean Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, folks, these are just a sampling of the many times that Jesus, as I said, either directly or indirectly asserted that he was the Messiah. Well, listen, it's one thing to claim to be the Messiah. It's quite another thing to demonstrate and to prove that you are the Messiah, As I told you last week, since the time of Jesus, there have been a plethora of false messiahs, messianic frauds, imposters, who have declared themselves to be God's messiah. And sadly, very sadly, many Jewish people desperate for a savior to deliver them from their enemies, physically deliver them from their enemies, they have allowed themselves to be deceived by such frauds. In fact, not too many years ago, when I was on a trip in Israel, I was there with my son Ben, I saw all over Jerusalem signs declaring that the Messiah is coming. Now, you might think, oh, that was put out by believers in Jesus, but no, no. The so-called Messiah was a reference to an old Hasidic rabbi from Brooklyn, New York, who, by the way, had never even been to Israel. His name was Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, 
Many were hailing him as Messiah and the new hope of Israel. Well, you know what? Rabbi Schneerson died in 1994. He never did make it to Israel. But most of his dedicated followers, at least many of them, of his dedicated followers actually refused to believe it. They didn't believe that he died. Instead, they chose to believe that he did not pass away, and they expect him to reveal himself someday to be the Messiah. So that's how misguided some Jewish people have been when it comes to identifying the Messiah. And listen, this rabbi, he won't be the last, the last man the Jewish people will wrongly hail as the anointed one. Jesus himself warned his disciples that during the seven-year tribulation period that ends with his second coming, there will be an increase of messianic impostors. He said this in Matthew 24, starting in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So as we get closer to the end times, Jesus said you can expect an increase in phony messiahs. So we know that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The word of God clearly tells us this. As we've already seen, though, anyone can say they are Messiah. That doesn't mean or make them Messiah. If Jesus is the real Messiah, then it only makes sense that God would give us some objective ways to determine if he's genuine or not. Good news is he has. He has. This morning, as we continue our study from the book of Acts, Specifically, in chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we see Peter giving evidence after evidence to one's hostile Jewish people that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And the reason he did this was because a crowd of Jewish people had gathered in the city of Jerusalem, curious as to a loud hurricane-like noise that they had heard which, as Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us, was the sound of the Holy Spirit arriving. But upon arriving at the place where the sound was initially heard, this crowd heard something else that amazed them. They heard all the believers in Jesus, 120 Galilean Jewish people, speaking of the mighty deeds of God, not in their own Galilean dialect, but in foreign languages, previously never studied or known by them. And being puzzled, they want to know, what is this all about? And so Peter, as spokesman and the unofficial leader of the apostles, he gets up and he tells them what this is all about. He tells them what this means by giving them a sermon in which he starts out by explaining that what they are hearing and what they are observing is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel's prediction that in the last days, meaning the days that were kicked off by the Messiah's arrival, God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all his people. That's what he said you're observing. Continuing, he tells them that while this outpouring of the Spirit means that the last days have started, Joel also predicted that these days will come to a close with the coming of God's fierce 
judgment in a period of time called the day of the Lord. Therefore, because this judgment is coming, Peter, still quoting Joel, says in verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now watch this, because it's at this point in his sermon that Peter takes a turn, and he transitions to a new point as he moves away from telling them about the last days and its accompanying judgment to telling them about Jesus of Nazareth, the one they need to call upon in order to be saved from God's coming judgment. So, what Peter does in this next section of his sermon is he sets forth his case for Jesus being the Messiah. And he does this in a very, really very logical, very easy to understand and follow way. He does it by presenting chronologically four aspects of Christ's earthly ministry. His life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension back to heaven where he was exalted by God the Father. Taking each of these phases of Christ's earthly ministry, and then using Old Testament scripture to back up his assertions, Peter argues his case that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. Now, last week, we only had time to look at Peter's first two arguments, that both Christ's life, specifically the miracles he performed during his earthly ministry, and his death, since it was predetermined and foreordained by God to happen exactly the way it happened, prove that he's the Messiah. His life, his death. This morning, we want to examine Peter's third argument for Jesus being the Messiah, which is that Christ's resurrection proves that he is the Messiah. Now watch this, verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now before we look at this verse, and we will look at it, And all that Peter has to say about the resurrection of Jesus, it's important for you to understand the significance, the significance of Jesus being raised from the dead. Why is this so important? First of all, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate proof that he is deity, that he is God in human flesh. Romans 1.4 says, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. What this means is by the resurrection, God the Father made a declaration that this is my Son. This is God in human flesh. Secondly, Christ's resurrection proves that God accepted his death on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. He accepted it. He's satisfied with it. He received it. He applied it to us. Romans 4.25, who was delivered over, speaking of Christ, delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He was raised because we were justified. Christ's resurrection proves that God is just and righteous because Our sin was addressed and it was paid for by Christ and that God the Father is satisfied with Christ's death on our behalf and therefore we are justified by faith in him. 
And because we are justified, what does that mean? Justified, it means that we are looked upon by God as legally righteous. We don't always behave righteously, but as far as God is concerned, legally, he declares us righteous, having no sins on our record, meaning that there is nothing that can condemn us to hell. None of our sins. We have been declared righteous. Then, like Christ, because this is true, like Christ, we will be raised from the dead, and we will spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He will rise again and live even if he dies. Listen, so much, so much is banking on Christ's resurrection. Without his resurrection, the death of Jesus means absolutely nothing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he can be put in the same category with all those other messianic fakes who have tried to deceive the Jewish people. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith in him is absolutely worthless because without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no forgiveness of our sins. There is no hope of going to heaven when we die. In, in fact, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He lays out how we should be looked upon with pity. We should be looked upon with pity, he says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, but our faith is still in him. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, he says, it's worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, it means who've died in Christ, they've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Concerning this last statement, we are of all men most to be pitied, the recently deceased great theologian R.C. Sproul said these words. He said, how many times in my life have I heard skeptics say, how can you, if you're in your right mind, believe in the resurrection of Christ? The resurrection of Christ, he says, is at the heart and soul of the Christian faith. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. He says, that is why I say to hostile unbelievers, don't be mad at us, pity us, because we are investing all our hope in this single tenet, that a man in Jerusalem was killed and the grave could not hold him. But the truth of the matter is we don't need anybody's pity. We don't need anyone's pity because Jesus has risen from the dead. And the Apostle Peter is about to prove this to the skeptical Jewish crowd standing before him. And in doing so, my prayer is that may his words persuade those of you who have yet to trust Christ as Messiah and Lord, that you will, you will be persuaded that you need him for salvation. That's my prayer for those who have never trusted him, that you'll be persuaded of the truth and you'll go running to him, seeing how desperate you are to know him. And if you are a believer in Christ, then my prayer for you has been 
that Peter's words, may his words about the resurrection of our dear Lord, may they strengthen your faith, may they give you a deep-rooted conviction and assurance that you do not have to fear death because you will rise from the dead just as Jesus did. Now, once again, let's go back to Acts, to Peter's, to Peter's sermon. Acts 2, verse 24. He says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. What a great statement. Let me explain. Having just stated in the previous verse that Jesus died both by the foreknowledge of God's predetermined plan, as well as at the hands of sinners, Peter now makes a most stunning statement, certainly stunning to the crowd that he was addressing, that Jesus, though dead, rose from the dead. You and I are used to this. I guarantee you this crowd of Jewish people, thousands of them, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, was not used to hearing those words. But more, listen, this is more than a mere factual statement about Jesus rising from the dead. Notice how Peter puts it. He says that it was God who raised him up. He didn't just walk out of the tomb. It was God who did this. That's important because in saying this, Peter is telling this crowd that God demonstrated his approval of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Notice exactly how Peter puts it. He explains God's work in the resurrection of Jesus as, and I quote, putting an end to the agony of death. Now, the Greek word that is translated agony is actually birth pains or birth pangs. So what Peter is literally saying is that in raising Jesus from the dead, God was freeing him from the birth pains of death. In other words, just like the the birth pains of a woman in labor are temporary, So Jesus' pain in death was temporary too, soon giving way to the resurrection. Someone put it this way. They said, the abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. But if you look at this verse again, you're going to see that Peter isn't content to just say that it was God who freed Jesus from the agonizing birth pangs of death. Notice the rest of this verse, because As we read on, we see that Peter gives the reason why God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And it's important that you follow his argument. He says, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter is telling us that it was an impossibility for Jesus to stay dead. Impossible. God would not allow him to remain dead. And this, Peter says, is why he raised him back to life. Why was this the case? Why was it not possible for death to hold Jesus? Listen closely. The reason that it was impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of death is because the Old Testament scriptures said that the Messiah would rise from the dead, and the scripture cannot be broken. Whatever God says will happen always happens because God is always faithful to keep his word. In other words, just as it was by God's sovereign predetermined plan that Jesus would die by the hands of sinners, so it was by God's sovereign predetermined plan that he would be raised from the dead and nothing can prevent his sovereign plan from happening. 
There's an old hymn that may have gotten its inspiration from this passage. It says in part, Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to visit Lakeside and need directions or service times, call the office at 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. We're in the middle of Pastor Steve's series of messages from Acts chapter 2 about the Apostle Peter's Pentecost sermon. If you want to catch up on previous broadcasts or listen again to today's lesson, visit the Message Archive page at versebyverseradio.org. And there's a giving page if you'd like to help with the cost of producing and airing Verse by Verse. That web address is versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. C.H. Spurgeon said this about death and fear. For the most part, there is such a thing as terror in the prospect of death. The fear is often greater in prospect than in reality. In fact, it is always so in the case of the Christian. He went on to say, And so the fear and the faith shall go on hand in hand together for a while, till at last perfect love shall come in and take the place of fear. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.